0: Well, I want to uh, welcome you all to a start of our uh, new Fairbank uh, series on uh, critical issues confronting China. As you know, uh, in mid-year last year, uh, we went from doing it in an auditorium to doing it by Zoom. And the bad news was that we could not assemble in our auditorium. Uh, the good news was that we had a broader audience. Uh, that we reached outside and uh, we got more people to attend uh, who uh, could not make it. And also the other good news was that we didn't have to pay our speaker travel fee or hotel fee uh, because he he could operate or she could operate from their home. Uh, But considering all the difficult problems now between the United States and China, uh, we feel very lucky to be able to have this series and to have over 300 people attending the session today and we're very pleased to have our speaker, Evan Feigenbaum. Evan did his uh, graduate work at Stanford with Condi Rice and others. And he's had the good fortune to work with a lot of great people. Uh, he worked under Mark Z- uh, with Bob Zelick for a while and he worked for Hank Paulson. And as you probably know, Hank Paulson uh, led the uh, series of uh, talks between the United States and China and Evan got to go uh, and uh, be with him. And then uh, when uh, Paulson set up his institute, he asked Evan to be head of the institute, so he moved to Chicago for a while. And in Chicago, he ran a research program for uh, Paulson. Uh, In addition to knowing China and speaking the language well, uh, working on it many years in the State Department, Evan has also covered South Asia and uh, Central Asia. So he's had those unusual perspectives of those two places. And because he worked with Paulson, he got involved in uh, financial issues and economic issues and running uh, all those programs at the Paulson Institute. Uh, he was brought on to the Carnegie Institute of Washington uh, and as uh, vice president. And he barely moved into his apartment when he had to move back to Chicago uh, because of the uh, coronavirus. So he's now operating from Chicago, uh, but uh, through uh, the <coughs> uh, wonder, wonder Works at Zoom, uh, he's able to be uh, vice president of Carnegie Institute, which, as you know, runs a very large program and very much in, in the center of of um, the Washington politics. Uh, He also spent four years at the Kennedy School. That's where we got to know him. And uh, therefore has very good Harvard connection. So we're delighted that he was willing to take the time. I think you can see from the things I've said that he has a very broad background, lots of connections. uh, And he's been a very good team player, and a very good leader. And uh, we're delighted that Evan has agreed to start a series. So I won't waste any more of your time. Evan, it's yours. Thanks a lot for coming if I might jump in just briefly. Um, sorry, Evan, I will turn it over to you <laughs> in a moment. Um, I, I'm sure many people will have questions um, from this talk. Um, if you do, please just enter them in the Q&A tab, which is at the bottom of your screen. Um, we will. We expect we'll probably get many more questions than we're able to actually ask. Um, but we'll do our best to get through as many as possible. Um, Please note that the Q&A will be recorded and this will be posted afterwards. So if you would like to remain anonymous, I believe there is an anonymous question asking option. If not, please just identify yourself with your name and your affiliation at the beginning of your question when you submit it. Thank you. And Evan,
1: take it away.
2: All right. Great. Well, thanks uh, to Ezra. Thanks to the Fairbank Center. Um, I may be vice president of the Carnegie Endowment, but my heart is still in Cambridge. And as Ezra said, I I feel, Ezra always keeps me feeling like I'm part of the family. I have a long history with the place. You
1: are.
2: Yeah, thank you. So I I came to Harvard in 1997. Hard to believe that's 23 years ago as a postdoc. Uh, In 1998, I taught Rod McFarquhar. Rod McFarquhar went on leave and uh, i taught rod's uh, one of rod's seminars while he was gone as a lecturer in the government department um this is not my first talk at the fairbank center <laughs> i've given a few my first one i remember we had we had uh, merle goldman ben schwartz you ezra and, and others around the table so um it feels like it feels like coming home every time i do this and so thank you thank you for having me it's great to great to kick it off um we had, some, we had some back and forth about the topic for this um, and specifically whether to talk about China or to do U.S.-China. And I, I settled on U.S.-China relations because I, I think it's a useful point of entry for what I hope will be an interactive discussion on at least three things. Um, the first is really how China has evolved over the last 10 years or so. I'd say from late Hu Jintao through Xi Jinping up to the present. And the reason I say that is I think um, there's a highly interactive dynamic between the United States and China and some of what we're seeing emanating not just from Washington, but from the traditional... Stakeholders and constituencies that have supported a productive U.S.-China relationship is indeed a reaction to some of the ways that China's evolved over the last 10 years. So I thought it was a useful point of entry to that. Um, Second is how China may evolve over the the next 10 years. Uh, Because Washington, and I'm going to talk a lot about the United States here, is heading in directions that are sure to produce certain kinds of policy choices, um and decisions in beijing that i think will have enduring effects on china's trajectory over time Uh, this particularly touches areas like technology and the degree to which china balances indigenization with global integration um there are constraints on that but i think again because of this interactive dynamic between china and the world and the united states in particular Um, It will have some effects on that. And third, I thought U.S.-China was an interesting point of entry into how third countries, particularly in Asia, are positioning themselves. Um, My main day job is in Washington. There's a tendency in Washington, I think, to talk about U.S.-China interaction and the future of Asia refracted through a kind of bipolarity between these two countries, as if the future of Asia will either be Chinese or American or it will be bipolar through rigid block-like arrangements. I actually think the future of Asia is more likely to be like fragmentation uh, than either neat unipolarity or bipolarity. And I'm gonna talk about why that's the case, but it has a lot to do with how third countries are positioning themselves in the face of this increasingly hostile US-China dynamic and also the way has evolved and the lack of appreciation, I think, in both Beijing and Washington for the complexity of some of the dynamics in Asia today. All right, so, um, so I'm gonna do this in four, let's call them bites. And Ezra asked me to talk for about 45 minutes, so we'll see how long I can stretch this. Um, but uh, um, I'm gonna do four things with you. First, I, I wanna talk a little bit about, from my perspective, what were some of the dynamics that really governed the US-China relationship from the inception uh, up until a few years ago, when I think some things really began to change in fundamental ways. So that segues to the second bite, which is really what's changing, particularly on the American side. And I do think we're in the face of a structural change. And I wanna talk about some of the reasons why I think that's the case uh, and why I think some of these things are gonna endure beyond just this election cycle. Um, third, I want to come to this question about how third countries in Asia are positioning themselves in the face of what I view as an increasingly confrontational dynamic between the U.S. and China. Um, people often talk about strategic competition. I want to call it managed enmity. It's enmity, uh, but with within some, some guardrails still. So I'll call it managed enmity. And then last, I want to talk about the US and China again and to bring it full circle. And I'll say something about why I think actually for all their differences, they have a kind of parallel misunderstanding of this dynamic in Asia. So I'm gonna go through those four bites and I'll try and give you a lot to chew on and hopefully that uh, provokes you a little bit and gives us some things to, to talk about. All right, so um, let's rewind a little bit to the inception. You know, there's a lot of talk about strategic competition. If you read our national documents, the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, if you listen to the way Mike Pompeo talks, uh, or on the Democratic side, the way people like Senator Mark Warner of Virginia talk, um, you would think that strategic competition is a thing of relatively recent vintage. But in fact, if you think about when Richard Nixon went to China in 1972, the United States and China were essentially fighting a proxy war in Vietnam. And uh, China was still kind of crawling its way out of the late phases of the Cultural Revolution. So security competition and classic clashing security concepts and then political and ideological differences really have been with us since the inception of the relationship. To put that another way, they are a feature. They are not a bug of US-China relations. Um, now that's important because um, the way people talk about clashing security concepts and strategic competition today suggests that excludes the possibilities of integration or of productive, constructive relations between the United States and China. But I actually, think if you look at the way things evolved until recently, that was patently not the case. After all, as I said, if these things were a feature and not a bug in the relationship, uh, then we might have predicted that there would be less coordination than there actually was, and less economic integration than proved to be the case, which is precisely what people are trying to rewind and undo now. Um, there are two things that security competition proved not to be a bar to. Um, one was coordination between Washington and Beijing on scary transnational threats. I just did an interesting video series at the Carnegie Endowment. It's called Six Crises. It's a video book. I stole the title from Richard Nixon who wrote a book called Six Crises uh, in 1962 when he was the former vice president and had been defeated by John F. Kennedy. And he was reflecting on how crisis situations had kind of changed his perspective uh, on politics, on strategy, and on life. Um, And it occurred to me that there had been crisis situations, particularly in the last 20 years, where for all their strategic differences and for all the security competition between them, the United States and China had nonetheless found ways to coordinate, Uh, not because they liked each other, not because they were in love, not because they were good buddies, but because for self-interested and ultimately uh, selfish reasons, it had been in the interest of decision-makers in Beijing and Washington to coordinate. So I did a series of conversations with people like Hank Paulson and Mike Levitt, the former Health and Human Services Secretary, Tommy Thompson, another former Health and Human Services Secretary, Susan Rice, a former National Security Advisor, where we looked at instances of transnational coordination. Uh, Ebola in 2014, the global financial crisis in 2008, a major food safety crisis uh, where there were toxic substances in Chinese Uh, products uh, being exported to the United States in 2007 and 2008. And the interesting thing is a lot of those instances of of coordination came uh, simultaneous to moments of security crisis between the United States and China. In 2014, when Susan Rice, for example, was dealing with Ebola, and the United States and China were doing things like coordinating, even having their scientists work together in West Africa, something that's almost unthinkable in the current context of the pandemic, and how they're treating each other. Um, China had just declared an air defense identification zone in the East China Sea, and so security tensions were spiking. Uh, Same thing for 2008, same thing for 2007. All of these things were always there, but they didn't really prove to be a total and complete bar to the ability of these two countries to coordinate in a self-interested way in the face of transnational threats and crises. And then second, the security tensions and obvious differences of ideology and political system also did not prove to be a bar to economic integration. And over time, flows of goods, capital, people, technology, and data began to integrate the two countries economically, uh, particularly after China came in the World Trade Organization in 2001. So if I think about kind of the arc of the relationship from the 1970s until what I would characterize as a relatively recent past, um, uh, security competition has always been there clashing security views have always been there, particularly around how Asia ought to be organized. And the political and ideological element was always in the background. They're not of recent vintage, Um, but they weren't bars to these things because, and this is really the central point I wanna leave you with in this first bite, um, economic integration was not made impossible by those things and so economics and security really advanced in parallel lines and if you talk to people in corporations or if you talk to people in the markets as i know bill overhaul and others among you do the security tension was always something they were aware of but it was either background noise that didn't really impinge on their business model in a very direct way and it wasn't something that was front and center that was the driver enabler or prism on a lot of the commercial interaction between the United States and China, which is why the United States and China, to be very frank about it, became enormously economically integrated over the last uh, decade to decade and a half a $700 billion two-way trading relationship in goods and services, $100 billion plus in U.S. foreign direct investment stock in China, um, uh, a hefty amount of Chinese FDI stock, and particularly flow in the United States. And then, of course, flows of people, the hundreds of thousands of students, scholars, tourists, and so on, including some of them on this call, uh, who uh, really came to characterize the U.S.-China relationship. All right. Now, that's important because it's, segues us into our second bite, which is why I think things are changing in ways that are really disruptive, somewhat different, and will have effects that, in my view, are likely to endure. Um, There are three vastly changed dynamics in play today, and I wanna call these uh, for want of better terms. First, securitization of the US-China interaction. Second, extraterritorialization of the competition. And third, I'm gonna make up a word here, the ideologization of the US-China relationship. And I wanna take each of those in turn. The first, which I called securitization, is really the most important because of what I tried to leave you with as the headline on the first bite. If the headline on the first bite was that economics and security largely advanced in parallel lines, Uh, my view is that they are no longer advancing in parallel parallel lines. And in fact, the security prism has become the dominant one through which the five things I talked about before, flows of capital, people, technology, data, and in some areas, even goods are being now refracted. Um, When I think about the way this relationship evolved, I think for many people on both sides, but particularly on the US side, there was a kind of working theory of the case, which was that economic integration would mitigate security competition and obvious differences of political system and ideology. And I choose that word mitigate carefully. Because as I said, it was a feature, not a bug. So I think everybody was aware that these things were out there. But so the view was not that economic integration would make the security issues go away. The disputes over Taiwan would not disappear. The things on the South China Sea wouldn't just evaporate like waving a magic wand. But that economic integration between two countries at least would mitigate the worst and most debilitating effects and elements of that security competition. But the reality is if you look at where we are today, uh, economic integration has not mitigated security competition, which in my view is growing worse between the United States and China, all around China's immediate periphery and beyond. You see it in the South China Sea, you see it in the Taiwan Strait, you see it even in the way the United States talks about things like the Belt and Road, which at its inception in 2013, some people tried to argue was just a simple issue of an infrastructure initiative, China exporting excess capacity. But now certainly in Washington is viewed largely through a security prism and as a geopolitical initiative, not just as accumulation of bilateral infrastructure agreements. So economic integration has not mitigated security competition. Security competition is actually getting worse demonstrating that the working theory of the case, I think that some people had was a little off base. Um, But second and worse, security in my view is now bleeding back into every dimension of the commercial relationship in ways that have the potential to disrupt those flows in those five buckets that really, again, after 2001 and China's WTO entry began to define the US-China relationship. To illustrate that, I think you need to just drill down on a few of those buckets. Let's take people, let's take data, and let's take technology. You know, um, if you listen to way, the way the director of the FBI, Chris Ray, or you listen to the way the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, or Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, or others, talk about flows of people, it is absolutely being refracted again through this prism of securitization, particularly in areas touching science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM-related subjects. I think some of that had to do with changes in the nature of technology and innovation over the last 40 years or so. If I think about the flow of innovation, let's say from the 1960s to the 1980s, uh, sorry, from the 1940s to the 1960s, during that period, in a lot of ways, military innovations had really drove a lot of the really disruptive things in commercial innovation. The Second World War, there were these extraordinary war babies, uh, German rocketry, American computing, British radar, American atomic bombs. These military innovations really drove a lot of the follow on commercial innovation that def- defined the period from the 1940s to the 1960s. But by the 1960s, it was really commercial innovation, particularly in microelectronics and semiconductors, that was driving military and weapons related innovation. But if you fast forward to today, and if you think about the technologies that are really emerging and foundational to the future, artificial intelligence enabled applications, uh, quantum computing, new synthetic and composite materials, Uh, pharmaceutical and biotechnology related innovations. These things are neither military nor commercial in nature. They are at minimum dual use and potentially multiple use. And so a lot of the AI enabled applications that have public benefit, not least in telemedicine, can also be used uh, for security related purposes. They can train a surveillance camera, they can do a lot of things. Um, That's an easy prism Uh, to look at this debate about uh, STEM education. Uh, And if you listen to people like Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, or if you listen to people in the executive branch, uh, they talk about STEM education not as a public good, but as something that is enabling the rise of a competitor in ways that will have security and strategic effects. Now, personally, I reject some of that view, but I think it's complicated, as many things in life are complicated. And so again, what I'm trying to say to you, not normatively, but analytically, is there has been a wholesale security Puritization, even of people flows, in the way that some people look. And if you look at the way the Trump administration is adapting visa policies uh, and the way they're talking to universities about education, I think that this administration in particular is trying to sharpen the contradictions uh, around people flows and about co innovation partnerships with China of all kinds by universities, by laboratories. Uh, And by commercial entities in a way that reflects this much more intensive securitization and security prism on the relationship. The same thing is true of flows of data. Why are we having a debate about TikTok? Why are we having a debate about WeChat? few weeks ago, the President of the United States issued executive orders on WeChat and TikTok. And if you're like me, and you have a child, I have an 11-year-old daughter who makes, she makes, I'm not embarrassed to say, she makes TikTok videos with her friends. And most of her TikTok videos involve her dancing and singing songs. And so when I think of TikTok, the first thing that pops in my head, when I'm not being an analyst of China, but I'm just being a dad, is my 11-year-old daughter dancing with her friends. But if you talk to senators on both sides of the aisle, members of the House, including on the Democratic side, uh, when they think of TikTok, the first thing that pops in their heads is flows of Americans' personal data to China. And therefore, they would argue uh, a security dimension and a security threat to flows of data that ultimately involve Chinese entities. Of course, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese Chinese entity. Uh, um, And the the same is true of flows of data, all kinds. So we're having a debate about flows of data to China that we would not, in my view, have been having five years ago if we were simply talking about the interaction between China as a commercial one. Uh, So again, we have the securitization of the US-China relationship in all of these buckets involving commerce. In the pandemic environment, even flows of goods Uh, People are talking about dependence on China for exports of PPE, of personal protective equipment, or of drugs and pharmaceuticals. And you have interesting political coalitions in Washington, Ted Cruz and Elizabeth Warren, uh, Tom Cotton and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, people who agree on nothing but find ways to come together, to write letters to the executive branch, to talk publicly about what they view as the security challenges and dimensions of this commercial interaction in all of these buckets. So that is a wholesale change that I would argue to you is quite disruptive of the way I talked about the relationship before when I said that economics and security advance largely in parallel lines, uh, and was viewed, I think, by people in the markets as a distraction or as noise. It's no longer noise. It is the prism through which a growing number of commercial interactions between the U.S. and China are refracted. And if you're sitting in a boardroom, if you're sitting in a C-suite, uh, I can tell you people are thinking about this in ways that they were not three to five years ago. Uh, The same is true of flows of technology, where this administration is using export controls in all sorts of interesting and creative ways. Uh, You've seen it with Huawei, where they're essentially trying to murder the company, um, but I don't think that's the end of the story. I think they've discovered that they can use a much more elastic definition of national security uh, and that they can use export controls in ways that can have real and pervasive effects on the way American corporates interact with China. So that's a long way of saying that the securitization of US-China relations really is quite disruptive to commercial interaction, and I think is going to endure, irrespective of what happens in this country on November 3rd. Now, that's not the end of the story. I told you there were two more buckets. Um, The second I want to call extraterritorialization. What I mean by that is that I think the view in Washington is increasingly uh, that this securitization of the US-China interaction is something the United States ought to try to offshore. Um, Now at the high level, the way that's been done uh, is through speechifying, essentially firing off nasty grams at Beijing on a daily basis. But second, by people like the Secretary of State, Mr. Pompeo, trying to, I think as I would put it, organize a posse, If you like old Western films, they're trying to round up a posse in Europe and Asia to join the United States in a much more confrontational and coercive strategy toward China. And I'm going to come back to that because, as I teased at the beginning, I want to talk to you a little bit in the third bite about how third countries are positioning themselves. Um, But that's at the high level. At the more practical, granular, day to day level, what you have is the US using the security tools at its disposal in a much more extraterritorial way. I can illustrate that for you with the example of two companies TSMC, uh, which is a chip fab in Taiwan, and ASML, which is a Dutch uh, maker, a uh, company in the Netherlands that makes ultraviolet lithography lithography machines, which is a specialized technology that's involved also in semiconductor fab. Uh, These were companies that were involved with uh, the notorious Huawei in various ways. TSMC through a sales relationship, ASML because they wanted to sell some of these lithography machines. Um, And in both of those instances, the United States has been able to not just utilize, but offshore... Uh, its export controls and regulatory instruments uh, to pressure and prevent those companies from doing business with China as they would prefer to do. Um, If you're sitting in Washington, I think having watched what's happened, particularly in European capitals, where two to three years ago, the United States was told to give up the ship in trying to persuade these countries to keep Huawei out of their 5G networks. um, You probably think you've got some SWAT Now, uh, the British and some of these other countries in Europe have reversed themselves either wholesale or at least in substance, if not in rhetoric on that. And the US has been able to deploy these export controls in selected, but nonetheless quite effective ways. Um, And I think again, that is likely to endure. Now we can talk later on about what might change over time. Some of the use of those I think is unusually Trumpy, but the point that I'm trying to make for you is that the US is both securitizing and trying to offshore the securitization of its interaction in ways that will lead third party entities, companies, universities, uh, governments uh, to feel the pinch. And the US isn't particularly nuanced, subtle, or complex about that strategy. It views this problem as a nail that requires a hammer. Uh, It's meeting resistance and pushback. But as I said, I think there's a view in Washington that there's some juice behind that strategy. All right, that brings me to the third change dynamic, which I call the ideologization of the relationship. Um, If you listen to the way people on the US side, and frankly, on the Chinese side, I'll come back to the, we can come back and talk about the Chinese side. I'm gonna focus more on the US in this talk, but I hope in the discussion, we can talk about what's happening in Beijing. Um, There is a growing kind of end of days quality and apocalyptic tone to the discussion. Um, there were a set of speed, there was kind of a quartet of speeches by the FBI director, the attorney general, the secretary of state, and the national security advisor, uh, the four of them uh, over the last uh, few months. Um, and if you thread through those speeches, what you hear is a, a highly ideological component. This is a contest of systems. It's a battle between openness and closure, uh, between democracy and authoritarianism, frankly, between good and evil. Um, um, that is important. Important because particularly when I come back to talking about Asia it's not the prism through which I think most Asian governments in particular look at the relationship but it's increasingly a frame that I hear applied on the US side and I think because it touches some existential issues in Beijing and also some third rails of Chinese politics it has the potential to take on a more existential quality in Beijing as well um, so That's why you hear Mr. Pompeo talking about essentially rounding up a posse of like-mindeds. It's why you hear talk about exclusionary economic blocks. Um, The United States is a mercantile power. Uh, It's not only traded with uh, countries that are just like us. Uh, Countries that are just like us are actually a small share of... uh, of of the future growth picture, uh, and so that would be an interesting dimension of U.S. policy uh, that would both preclude, uh, but also alter some dimensions of American strategy. So what I'm trying to impress upon you in this second bite is that if um, security competition has been with us since the inception, but was not either the obstacle to or the principal driver of all things in the relationship. I think to a degree, securitization of the U.S.-China relationship will have debilitating and pernicious effects that will be felt across the spectrum of U.S.-China interaction and already are being. Uh, Some of you may have already had a taste of this uh, uh, either through exchanges you're trying to run with China, uh, particularly in the sciences and in some of the STEM subjects. uh, But I also think uh, just because you live in a third country doesn't mean you won't touch this and feel it as well. All right. That brings me to my third bite, which is the region. Um, If this is increasingly the US approach, it does beg the question of how the United States is going to fare, and frankly, whether the United States is reading the partners it's going to need for a more confrontational approach to China correctly. I'm going to be blunt about this because it's really the central theme of my writing, particularly beyond just China or US-China over the last decade or so. I think uh, the United States and China are mirroring each other in tilting at a kind of fantasy view of Asia, uh, where for all their differences, politically and otherwise, they're actually mirroring some of each other's behaviors and how they approach third parties in the region. Um, trying to essentially either coerce countries the united states through its export controls and pressure china through blunt economic coercion of australia of south korea of others or uh, through threats to deny market access um, to try to persuade countries either Uh, to fall in line, to not integrate too much with the other, to accept the preferred norms, standards, rule sets that either Beijing or Washington is promoting. And the reality is that's a very poor read in both Washington and Beijing on what's happened in Asia, I would argue from the Asian financial crisis on. And I'll be interested what Bill Overholt has to say about this. But I say this because I think the region changed a lot in the very tumultuous decade between 1998 and 2008. And to make that pithy for you, you can think of two bookends to that decade. One is the Asian financial crisis in 1997-98, and the other is the global financial crisis in 2008. Um, That was the moment in the first instance when countries in the region began to look to one another and not just to Washington and its preferred institutions and solutions for the problems that bedeviled the region. You may recall that the United States bailed out Mexico in 1994 and then refused to bail out Thailand three years later in 1997. And I would argue paid a very deep and enduring price in Southeast Asia for decades after that. Many of the pan-Asian ideas, PACs, institutions and ideologies that Washington today ascribes entirely to Chinese ambition or sees entirely as a function of Xi Jinping's so-called aggressiveness actually have antecedents in a pan-Asian dynamic that goes back to the 1990s and even further uh, and has many non-Chinese champions. Um, People in the United States like to talk about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, for instance, which was a Chinese idea from 2013 or so, um, that the United States elected not to participate in and urged its allies not to join. It's viewed today in the United States, I think, alongside the Belt and Road, which is not unlike the AIB, a multilateral development bank. It is accumulation of bilateral agreements. But nonetheless, these two things are viewed as kind of the archetype of China's attempt to organize the region without the United States. But the reality is if you rewind the clock back to the 1990s, it was Japan, uh, a country with a very strong sense of trans-Pacific identity, uh, a close American ally, uh, really the hinge of American strategy in the, in the Indo-Pacific uh, that came up with a variety of ideas like an Asian monetary fund that the United States tried to squash uh, through brute force when it really objected to these kind of incipient Pan-Asian regionalism and institutions. So these things have a long pedigree, and that's important because that was the moment, I think, was really an inflection point in 1997, 98, where uh, Pan-Asianism took on a dynamic. And Pan-Asianism is not all about China, and it's not all about Washington either. And it has had enduring effects that we see today, Pan-Asian trade agreements, swap arrangements, ideas of Asians relying on one another. The same thing is true of the financial crisis. In the wake of the global financial crisis, I think the way we really need to think about Asia and its role in the global economy has had to change. They're not just capital recipients anymore. They're capital providers. They're not just producers for export. They are consumers, including of exports from the major OECD economies, including from the United States, whether it's corn for for animal feed, or it's soybeans, or it's liquefied natural gas for their power plants. These countries are capital providers, not just recipients, uh, and they are becoming integrated with one another. Chinese capital through the Belt and Road, Japanese infrastructure investment, Korean money, Singaporean money, even Indian money is flowing across Asia, looking for yield. Um, Asian economies uh, helping one another in ways that I think are different than the way you hear people in the United States talking about it. Intra-Asian trade is rising as a share of regional trade. It's not just uh, for intermediate demand, it's also for final demand. Um, And that's a change dynamic. So what I'm trying to say to you is that while the United States economic role in Asia is rising everywhere in absolute terms, it is declining everywhere in relative terms. And that's important because it means, I think potentially a more Asian Asia doesn't necessarily mean a Sinocentric Asia. But the United States refracts everything in this region through the prism of its competition with China. And so the generic view that I hear emerging on the future of Asia is that it will be either unipolar, but Sinocentric or American-centric. So a unipolar region that either China or the United States dominates, or it will be bipolar. Um, A U.S.-China competition with everybody lining up in block-like arrangements, uh, analogous to the Cold War, where form drives function, rather than the other way around. Um, the f- the first of these is really encapsulated in something that President Obama said when he was trying to sell the Trans-Pacific Partnership domestically in 2016. You, remember, you remember President Obama was trying to sell the TPP and he was asked a question about what's in it for the United States. And he said, well, you know, it's great. Expand trade with Asia, fastest growing export markets. But then he pivoted to the US-China thing and he said, And this is literally a direct quote. He said, if we don't write the rules, China's going to write the rules out in that region, end quote. Bipolarity. It's us, it's them. The U.S. or China are going to write the rules of the region, set the norms, set the standards. I think that's a very, if you listen to what I just said to you, simple view of how the region has evolved. And I think the future of the region is going to look a lot more like fragmentation than like either unipolarity or straight up bipolarity. And so the U.S. and China actually in their approach to the region are mirror imaging each other. They're either assuming unipolarity or bipolarity and missing the degree of fragmentation, contestation, and the degree to which Asian countries are unwilling to be caught betwixt and between. And what I see in addition to fragmentation is really a discombobulated set of rules, norms, standards prevailing, uh, with function driving form rather than the other way around. The easiest way to encapsulate this for you is just to look at the trade and investment rules. Um, I would argue to you that uh, within two years, trade and investment rules for this region are gonna be set by two agreements, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is another agreement the United States doesn't particularly care for uh, and really is a Southeast Asian vehicle anchored in ASEAN. Go back to what I just said about President Obama's formulation. If the United States doesn't write the rules, China will write the rules. Okay, we've had a market test of that theory of the case. If President Obama had been correct, then when President Trump withdrew the United States from the TPP, what should have happened? China should have written the rules for the region. But that's not what happened. What happened was that 11 countries that remained came together largely through the push from Japan and Australia, and concluded the agreement at 11 and themselves, with neither China nor the United States as party to the agreement. And so if you fast forward to the future, we could see a whole variety of trade and investment standards set in two agreements, the CPTPP and the RCEP, both of which don't include the United States, both of which don't include India, notwithstanding all the American talk about an Indo-Pacific, and only one of which includes China, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. That, to me, is a much more complex, multifaceted, and fragmented vision of the future than I think the one that's portrayed in this highly securitized, essentially bipolar U.S.-China debate. And it's important because I talk a lot in the Washington context about the mistakes the U.S. is making. And if you misdiagnose the region, you end up with the wrong set of prescriptions. Um, The United States was the leader in Asia because it was the principal provider of both security and economic-related public goods and benefits. Security because its alliances, forward-deployed military presence, carrier battle groups, uh, provided the security framework that helped Asia power its way to prosperity. Um, There's no basis for collective security in the Pacific until China and Japan have a moment somewhat like France and Germany had in Europe. uh, And there's no sign of that on the horizon. And so the United States was, is, and as far as my eyes can see, going to continue to be a principal provider of security directly or indirectly for free riding by pretty much every country in Asia except China and North Korea. But that wasn't the end of the story. The United States was also a leader in Asia because it was a provider of economic public goods and other benefits. For one, it was the demand for which Asian economies Uh, that had an export-led strategy, powered their way to prosperity. But second, it was the norm-setter, the standard-setter, the leader on uh, trade and investment rules, standards, and liberalization. And if you think about what I just said, where the United States' role as a demand driver is shrinking in relative terms, even if it grows in absolute terms, uh, the United States will not play the same role economically that it did in the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, which makes that standard-setting role so much more important. But what do I see happening? I see the United States withdrawing from TPP. In fact, I would predict to you the United States never again does another major multilateral trade agreement. I don't think the politics are conducive to it anymore on either the Democratic or the Republican side of the aisle. And so we have a future where the United States is not an invisible economic player, but is less of a a standard setter and a rule writer. Uh, and where it will fall back increasingly on that security role at a time when the US-China relationship is being refracted entirely through what I described to you as a kind of securitization prism. Uh, so that's important because it suggests that the future will be much more fragmented and we may, we may see both the United States and China misplay, overplay, and badly play their hand. And I think what I described to you on trade and investment may become a model that's mirrored in other areas. One example is data governance. There may not be countries coming together to set a data regime, but countries like India, like Japan, may work on their own data regimes. If you follow data localization debates in India, for instance, there's a lot about it that has overtones of the data debate in China. Um, Localization requirements, national security requirements, ability of the state to impinge um, uh, the effect on foreign companies. And so the regulation of data in India as the regulation of, of data in other places is not necessarily to American liking either. All right. That brings us to where I kind of wanted to wrap up, which is if the U.S. and China have this kind of bipolar view of each other and it's securitized, I think the danger is that both of them will really misread the future of the region. And we're heading for kind of a messy period in Asia that I think will be with us for the next 10 or 15 years. And the way countries are going to deal with that, I think, is often through self-help. What you have in the region is a set of highly capable, relatively sizable, Uh, And highly self-interested powers uh, that that have shown the ability to try to work together individually, jointly, and sometimes tack in highly creative ways toward the U.S., toward China, where function drives form, notwithstanding this debate about form that has overtones of the Cold War. I just don't think that's the way Asia is shaping up. Um, Now, how the U.S. plays that and how people in Beijing play that will say a lot about how each of them fares in terms of positioning themselves in Asia. My own view is the United States is not positioning itself very well because of what I said to you about the second bite. Um, I think uh, it is no small thing to resist American pressure. I talked to you about some of the tools like export controls that the US have used extremely effectively. There are much more and even more powerful tools in the toolkit, access to the US financial system, um, your ability to dollar dollarize your transactions. And the U.S. has pulled none of those triggers and they're latent and they're in the background, but the U.S. has the potential to do so. Those things would be thermonuclear and would require uh, uh, third-party entities to think very differently. The Chinese have some tools too. Look at what's happening in Hong Kong. You know, the national security law in Hong Kong is a very interesting example of this. If you look at section four of article 29, um, it basically makes uh, complying with uh, sanctions in other words, enforcing sanctions in Hong Kong, uh, subject to the law. So the law has been drafted in a way that is directly contradictory to the US Hong Kong Autonomy Act. And so if you're a company, and you're having to navigate compliance with both the American law and the Chinese law. It's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and the Chinese ability to use it and to use it extraterritorially is latent, but If you heard what I said before about U.S. extraterritorialism, it's almost the mirror image of the way the U.S. has used it. Um, So I think it'll be interesting to see how the U.S. plays this and how China plays it. And I think, frankly, who plays it smarter and who plays it better and who plays it more convincingly will say a lot, not about who wins the future in Asia, uh, but who's able to shape the future that governs the way the other party has to interact. And as somebody who was out of Washington, I was in Washington for a long time. I moved to the Midwest, I moved back to Washington. I think a lot of these dimensions are missing in the debate we're having. Uh, We're having a largely bilateral debate. We're having an increasingly security-focused debate. Um, And the US has the potential to misplay its hand. I'm not telling you that the US is gonna be out of Asia, uh, but I do worry that the US will end up like the Hessians of Asia. Uh, The Hessians, you may recall, were George Washington. Sorry, they were the British uh, kind of rented mercenaries from Germany. And as an American, I'm biased about this. I don't want a future where the US uh, sails ships and flies aircraft around the region, but fades as a rule setter, norm setter and standard setter. The former Australian ambassador to Washington, Joe Hockey, who's a conservative politician from Australia, gave a speech that I'd call your attention to in Missouri. He did it in Fulton, Missouri, where Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech uh, uh, way back when at the inception of the Cold War. And his very Australian speech, he essentially shook his American audience by the lapels and he said, mates, you're a standard setting country. Time for you to rediscover your roots as a standard setting country again. Um, If the United States doesn't want to set set the standards, President Obama might prove to be right, uh, but he also might prove to be wrong for the reasons that I just said. A more Asian Asia, even if it's not a Sinocentric Asia, is not one that's good for the United States. And it's not necessarily one that China will play smartly either. So I leave you with that because I think both countries are on a trajectory that is uh, more confrontational than competitive even though they talk about competition. It's not a healthy thing for either of them. It's not a healthy thing for the region. And at the end of the day, it's not especially healthy thing for the US-China relationship. And I'll stop there and go back to where I started. I picked that as a topic because I was hoping that would give us a lot of points of entry. We can either talk about China, or we talk about DC, or we can talk about security or economics for the third players. But my intent was just to give you some things to bite on. And I hope that was useful, Ezra, do you? You're muted. Ezra, you have to unmute your microphone, (laughs) because I can't hear you.
0: Thank you. I want to say uh, that it was a wonderful presentation. uh, And it's just the kind of thing we'd hoped for, somebody who has the broad academic perspective, uh, who has had a lot of firsthand experience, and who sets the framework. I think it will guide a lot of our discussions this year. Uh, before uh, going down the, the uh, people who've been writing in uh, questions, uh, I would like to call him Bill Overholt to see if he has any comments, since I uh, haven't mentioned him and since been so uh, involved in a lot of these issues also. Bill, do you have a comment or question or combination?
1: Yeah, I thought it was a wonderful talk. Uh, and. Um, Evan and I have actually been pursuing some things in parallel ways. Uh, let me make an even stronger assertion about the U.S. provision of of public goods, and, and, and get get your reaction, Evan. Uh, I agree with you that we abandon the provision of public goods on the the economic side, and of course, uh, included in that uh, on in, environmental and and climate change side, which are huge additional dimensions beyond technology and and trade and and investment. Um, but I would argue that for a long time we we provided real public goods on the security side, and we're seeing. Even by the Chinese as providing a, a regional security public good of, of peace. And there were periods, for instance, where the, the Chinese, at least privately, praised our role in uh, assuring peace in Korea. But early on, uh, we in, in Korea, Ambassador Habib would always say, "Well, uh, I have two jobs: uh, preventing the North Koreans from front going south and preventing the South Koreans from going north." There wasn't an, any ambiguity about who our ally was, but but we were providing a broader public good and. Bring that right down to George W. Bush, uh, a hugely pro-Taiwan figure. But when Taiwan started provoking the dragon, uh, <clears throat> Bush gave priority to regional peace and and made it clear that 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 uh, uh, Taiwan was on its own if it provoked the dragon. But then you get to Obama and the crisis uh, over the Senkakus in, in uh, 2012. Uh, and up to that time, we had been providing a public good. We were neutral uh, uh, about sovereignty over the Senkakus. Uh, and that continued right through Hillary Clinton's warning the Japanese not to buy the islands. They're actually rocks, not islands. But then then, when the Japanese did it, we became a gang leader. the The George W. Bush approach of providing a public public good, of, of being fair, of, of focusing on peace, was completely thrown out, and and uh, we became the gang leader with Japan. Uh, I would argue that there are a whole series of issues where uh, we systematically abandoned the role of providing a public good and became a gang leader. Uh, And that has has furthered the disruption uh, that you talk about. Um, Is that consistent with, it's a very controversial view of, of, the 2012 Senkakus issue, but, but to me, it's very fundamental. Uh, it changed that and a bunch of related things, fundamentally alter our role in the region.
2: Well, I think my, my problem with that is it takes Beijing largely out of the picture. Um, and and I think the way I would tell the story is I, I, I actually view China as having um, becoming becoming much more assertive on a whole variety of bilateral and regional issues, and deploying its coercive tools uh, in ways that have not redounded to its benefit in a whole series of its bilateral relationships. Okay so let's just put East and South China Sea to the side. Let's just look at India as an example. You know India is a place that's deeply ambivalent about China. But nonetheless, at a high level of abstraction, shares many, incidentally, but nonetheless, shares many of Chinese views about a global architecture created by, organized by, and dominated by the transatlantic post-war powers that doesn't reflect the weight that not just China, but India, for example, believes it has in the world today since opening its market in the balance of payments crisis of 1991. Um, And that is why India, despite its ambivalence about Chinese power, joined the BRICS, joined the New Development Bank, is a charter member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Some of the early, AI again, it's an MDB, it's not a Chinese initiative, but it's influenced by China. They're the largest shareholder, and many of the early AIB projects are actually in India. So um, that's a place that always was ambivalent and where there were security tensions, but if well managed, not just in New Delhi, but in Beijing, should have been panning out better than they have been. Um, people often say, oh, countries in Asia need to choose sides. And whenever I hear that, I recall something that my friend Jay Shankar, who's now the external affairs minister in India, said a few years ago in a dialogue forum. He was on a stage with David Petraeus, the former American four-star CENTCOM commander, General Petraeus and Petraeus was needling him a little bit. You can watch this video. And he says, it's time for India to choose a side because of what's happening between the US and China. And Jay was out of government then, looks at him and he says, oh well, yeah, we've chosen a side. We've chosen our own side. <laughs> and I think, as I said, that's the way a lot of Asian countries think about it. So in that instance, as in the others, had Beijing played this more smartly, more subtly, more supply, I think it wouldn't be in the situation it is. But what we've seen now is just in the last three months, uh, we've seen what's happening in Ladakh and on the border. We've seen India go whole hog, ban 59 apps. Before the U.S. was talking about banning TikTok, India banned TikTok. Um, And that's something that I ascribe largely to a set of choices in Beijing, not just to the dynamic in Delhi. And I think when I look around China's periphery, I see that replicated all over the region. So frankly, if you go back to what I said, I actually think the US has, has been lucky that, that China has performed as poorly in managing some of its peripheral relationships and frankly has been as clumsy and assertive and aggressive as it has been. And so I ascribe a lot of what I'm seeing in the South China Sea and the East China Sea to Beijing's behavior and choices, uh, not to the way you set that up, which was largely about Washington's choices. And that's not to say there isn't an interactive dynamic. Of course there is. And by the way, it's not just US-China. There are other claimants. I mean, why, for instance, is the United States working with the non-China claimants to at least settle their claims with one another, which would strengthen their negotiating hand with, with Beijing? Hard, hard, uh, but worth the candle, in my view. Complicated. Uh, um, and so um, I actually think, this cliche about there being a change in Chinese foreign policy and external, I subscribe to that. I don't think it's just Xi Jinping. I think it goes back some of the issues with Japan as Ezra knows, you remember 2010, that was a tough year for China with Japan. It was a tough year for China with Korea. It was a tough year for China with India. And with Southeast Asia, too. So that's late Hu Jintao, which is why I said 10 years in the setup. But I do think with Xi Jinping, we're dealing with a different kind of setup in Beijing. And you see that, as you know, on the economic side. If Zhu Rongji were in charge of the Chinese economy today, I dare say that the choices being made would be a little bit different about competition policy, about market access, about state-owned enterprises than some of the issues and choices that we're seeing today. So um, my problem with your setup, Bill, is not to say that there isn't an interactive component, or to absolve every decision in Washington of responsibility. But I, I see a lot of the change actually emanating from changes in Beijing's behavior. I don't know if that makes sense. But
1: would it be Especially fair to now say I to,
2: both, uh, just like that both,
1: very quick, both Bill. in China have tried to claim the role of a provider of public goods. And both of us have dropped the ball. Uh, China portrays BRI as creating a community of common interest, and then they try to grab territory from all their neighbors. Uh, They've dropped the ball worse than we have, but your mirror image image,
2: seems very applicable. That Both of us have dropped the ball, but China dropped it worse. But but to be blunt, I don't see any. I don't see too many countries in Asia rushing to Beijing to to rely on China for their. sake, Which is why I said I'm more worried about the economic pillar for the U.S. than the security one, because China's managed to scare all its neighbors silly, so they're tacking toward Washington. Yeah. But the U.S. has the problem of fighting the map and fighting economic gravity, and so those are the dimensions I worry about. The next, I want to
0: call on Mark Elliott. Mark Elliott, as you know, was head of our Fairbank Center. And he now has a job as a vice provost for handling Harvard's uh, issues with the international relations. And uh, for, me, for me, it's kind of like the University State Department that he's the uh, head of the Department of State. So he has to worry about the big issues. And one of the issues he worries about uh, is the securitization and what that does to university relations. Uh, He said, and I read from his uh, question, uh, it limits the ability of places like the Fairbanks Center and Harvard uh, to have legitimate scholarly engagement and flows of people uh, both ways. If allowed to proceed, one can imagine the effective decoupling of US and China research establishments. Some might say this would result in a net loss to both sides result paradoxically in a world that is less, not more secure uh, for the U.S. and everyone else. How do you imagine this playing out? Uh, what position should
2: universities uh, take
0: on these issues?
2: Uh, um, Evan? Yeah. Hi, Mark. How are you? <laughs> Thanks for the question. Um, I, I think that's a great question because I think the direction that I was describing to you, which I feel very strongly is the direction we're headed, is going to have very debilitating effects on a lot of scholarly exchanges, particularly, as I said, in STEM-related subjects. But it's filtering down across the relationship in visa policies, in uh, the treatment of institutions, and the treatment of people in China. Uh, For one, there's the effect on the China field. I think, frankly, uh, it could make doing field work in China harder. Uh, the worse the relationship between the U.S.-China is. Um, I worry increasingly about issues of safety and security uh, for Chinese nationals in the U.S. and for, frankly, U.S. nationals and other third-party nationals in China. Um, I think university presidents, whether it's your president at Harvard, uh, you know, uh, or or Rafi Reef at MIT or some of the others, I've seen some of the university letters that they've done, the engagement they've done of the federal government in Washington. I think both the cautions that they've urged publicly and the way that they're talking to the government with transparency and with two-way communication is going to be both important and helpful. I will tell you that I think people in the government are determined to sharpen the contradictions for universities, and particularly on the research side, um, in ways that will make technology and science-based exchanges harder. I'll just give you a hypothetical. If you're at a university and you have DARPA funding, but you also have co-innovation partnerships in China, whether it's funded by Chinese entities or it involves working with state-directed or state-linked entities in China, my view is three to five years from now, that contradiction will become much sharper, and there will be people in the national security bureaucracy in Washington and, frankly, in Beijing, who will sharpen those contradictions for your institution. There are people on both sides that are determined to reduce the scope of those partnerships of all kinds. Um, And so I think that needle will become harder to thread. If you're at an MIT, if you're an institution that does a lot of classified, that that has scientists and people who do classified research. in MIT, they got Lincoln Labs. You've got people on the faculty with security clearances. They have some history of dealing with this. It's easier to navigate that landscape than if you're at a university that has less experience with that. So I worry about less about the segmentation of different kinds of research than about the issue of proprietary research that's not as the government would deem it classified, but where people in a government on a regulatory side or on a policy setting side or on Capitol Hill will view as either proprietary or sensitive, or as enabling, as I said, the kinds of flows of knowledge not just systems and technology that are conducive to the rise of a competitor. So that's a long way of saying, I think all of that is in the crosshairs. I think it'll get harder for institutions. I think it's sad. I think it'll have a debilitating effect on exchanges. And I think if I could just say something about the US for a second, I think the challenge on the US side, particularly with technology, is how to think in terms of what I would call a small yard with a high fence rather than a large yard with a high fence. If you think about flows of systems to a competitor or rival, when you design an export control system, but you also want a commercial relationship, ideally what you want is a small yard with a high fence to protect the crown jewels while allowing other things that are public goods and public knowledge to flow. But I think the way export control systems are evolving today, we have a yard the size of RFK Stadium in Washington with a high fence and a lot of elasticity about what constitutes national security and a lot of vagueness and uncertainty into the way things can be applied. And as I said, when I talked about the Hong Kong National Security Law, the Chinese have learned from that and they're mirror imaging both the uncertainty and the extraterritorial provisions in ways that a lot of relays a lot of uncertainty. So I think, Ezra, when you set the question up, you use the phrase decoupling. You know, decoupling, it's not an event. First, I I hate the phrase decoupling because it implies that the U.S. and China are a couple. When you're a couple, you can get divorced. But the U.S. and China are not a couple because other countries get a vote, right? The U.S. can control the flow of technology to China, but third countries may work around that and set up their own research and innovation partnerships with China. Um, But the reality is that decoupling, especially commercial decoupling, it's it's not an event where next Tuesday you suddenly decouple. It's a process where through a series of small decisions that raise transaction costs for doing business or dealing with China, uh, or just uncertainty, that at any given moment, the government can pull the trigger and adopt a policy that forces you to divest, that forces you to pull out of China, that forces Harvard not to do exchanges in China anymore. That can happen on any given day of the week. So it produces all sorts of hedging behavior in advance, preemptively. That's, That's decoupling because for universities to go back to the question, it means you have to worry about how the US will use the regulatory tool, the visa instrument, the national security instrument to attenuate the things you wanna do. So at minimum, it means investing in big infrastructure and new educational exchanges becomes harder and a more uncertain enterprise that you hedge against. Um, And in fact, it's a future you have to plan against. So I worry about what that means, because if you lose that, if you, lose the, if, you flow, if you lose the commercial flows and the people flows, what do you got left? You've got, you got the security stuff. And we're back, to, we're back to the inception where I talked about clashing security and ideological differences. And that's a very sad and unfortunate rewind in the last 40 years. It's not an, and this is not just an intellectual issue. It's a political one. I hope that answers your question. I
0: have, I have a, a political question that I thought I would throw in for myself. Uh, Evan, a lot of people you worked with are people I would describe as uh, moderate internationalist Republicans. Uh, yeah. I think uh, Bob Zalek and uh, Hank Paulson would fit that category. If we have a Biden administration, uh, what is what will be the role of these moderate, I, I think, international-minded uh, Republicans? Uh, in a in a Biden era, uh, what what role might they play?
2: The answer is I don't know. I,
0: I'm a Republican. <laughs> um, uh, so I, 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 no, I, no, I'm talking about what role you're
2: Republicans or what what kind of play in a Biden administration? Action? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think frankly, I think a lot of the issues that I was talking about and that surround U.S. China relations are conceptual. Are consent? they they're they're. they're, they're they're conceptual issues and they're political issues. They're conceptual issues because if we think you know, I often use a medical metaphor. If you get the diag- you can get the diagnosis right, but the prescription's wrong. And I think the diagnosis of what's going on in China and between the US. and China, rightly or wrongly, is largely bipartisan in Washington and shared across the aisle. The differences on China that I see today are not so much between establishment Republicans and Democrats. They're really between Washington and non-Washington. When I hear from governors and mayors, when you talk to farmers and ranchers that rely on China as an export, that you, you just get a different zeitgeist than the Washington zeitgeist. And as I said, when I talked about Elizabeth Warren and AOC on the one end and Tom Cotton and John Cornyn on the other, sounding a lot like each other on China, I, I think there's a cross-party consensus on some of what Ailed the prior set of policies, and also on the conceptual architecture now, um, but I think there is going to be a debate about prescriptions and about how to anchor China policy in a broader and more systemic approach to Asia and the world. And there, you know, I just I just don't know because um, be, because the Republican Party's. I'll say this as a former Republican appointee, I, I think the party's changed a lot. I mean, I, I used to think of Democrats as sort of the anti-trade party and Republicans as much more the the, the party of trade, the party of uh, the the party of the US chamber. Um, and now on a lot of issues in India, we have, we have two anti-trade parties. And the same thing is true if you listen to how Republicans talk about the instruments for competing with China. You hear a lot of enthusiasm for industrial policy, for non-market solutions, for managed trade. This is a Republican administration right now, after all, um, that's approached a very managed approach to trade that has some resonance in US Japan back in the 1980s. So so, um, we have the problem of cross-party consensus, but we also have the, if you want to make a change, but you also have this kind of shift in the parameters of the debate. Um, So I guess my answer is I don't necessarily see a role. in terms of shaping day-to-day policies. But I do think it's high time we had a larger debate about how the U.S. is positioned in Asia and internationally, uh, particularly after three and a half years of a market test of America first, the Trump version of this, which I think has not positioned the United States very well to compete. Uh, Eli Ratner often calls it confrontation without competition. And I think that's a pretty apt description of it. So we need more competition, uh, Uh, which may or may not be confrontational at times. I have one more
0: question, Evan, uh, in your role in Chicago, you played a role working with a lot of the Midwestern states in their relations with China. Uh, Now that we have Washington in such trouble uh, with uh, China, uh, do you think the states, uh, like some of the American uh, companies, uh, can play a larger and, and more constructive role in trying to work with China or do you think that's impossible?
2: I think it was more the case two to three years ago than it is today. Um, I think, frankly, Washington's reset the table now um, through the way, because, because you know, if you think about the old constituencies, it was largely foreign policy and national security elites. The Kissingers, the Brzezinski's, the Zelik's. Um It was large financial services firms, and it was multinational companies. They were the drivers in a lot of ways of the way the US-China relationship evolved. Um, All three of those constituencies have soured. The national security community views China as kind of an organizing principle for American foreign policy now and strategic competition as the talisman. Uh, Multinational financial services firms began to sour on China because they had been waiting 17, 18 years after WTO entry for the equity caps to be lifted. And multinational companies soured, even though they were doing a lot of business in China making a lot of money, because of a crossing behind the border barriers about which they complained to Washington. So to your point about the states, while those constituencies soured, what you've got were new constituencies, farmers and ranchers, mayors and governors, uh, mid cap companies in places like Ohio and Michigan, in sectors like medical devices that viewed expansion into China as critical part of their growth strategy. Those were the new constituencies driving closer integration, but they're not organized. They weren't organized in a way that was coherent and they weren't organized in a way that really had political effect. And you just look at what you can see at most, clearly in what's happened to farmers and ranchers during the Trump administration, right? It was ground zero of Chinese retaliatory action against the United States for the president's tariffs. Um, And farmers and ranchers have been hit really hard, really hard. Farm bankruptcy is an all-time high. They've really suffered. And China was a growth market. But um, are those farm and ranch states going to flip to Joe Biden because they're angry about China? Is China an organizing principle? I don't see it. I just don't see it. And now I think, as I said, we have Washington using regulatory tools in ways that are designed to constrict the flow of capital from China to job creating investments in the States. And that was the number one priority for governors. So if you were a Scott Walker in Wisconsin, for instance, jobs and growth in Wisconsin, Chinese investment, give me some of that. But then Scott Walker turned around and ran for president and became one of the hawkish candidates in the 2016 cycle. So, um, so as, as constraints on Chinese capital flow to the U.S. have dried up, governors have lost interest and I think lost that tool. So I don't really, I don't really see it. But I do think the key insight and point you have, which is at the subnational level, If you want to keep it going, that's what the drivers are going to be. Um, And I think the Chinese are wise to that. And you see the Chinese courting these governors very aggressively, trying to play a subnational strategy that's designed to create countervailing pressures against Washington. It's probably not going to work for them, but it will create some degree of interaction that persists in the U.S.-China dynamic, no matter how hostile it gets.
0: The final question, uh, we're running out of time, is from Andy Zelki of the Harvard Business School. I apologize to all the others uh, who haven't had a chance to answer, uh, ask her a question. Uh, he asks uh, a question regarding the WTO. Do you view Beijing is having fundamentally egregiously reneged on the hard commitments com- uh, made to WTO, or is uh, US indignation excessive?
2: You know, I'm not a trade lawyer, so I'm not the best person to answer that question. If you ask Charlene Barshevsky, she got a very dim view of China over how it's evolved over the last 10 years or so. If you ask Bob Zelik, also another former US trade representative, Bob has a slightly different take on it than if you listen to Charlene. So you can listen to them publicly. I'd encourage you, if you haven't seen it, Bob uh, is my former boss, so I'm gonna tout him. But uh, Bob gave an interesting, he did an interesting seminar with Kurt Campbell for the Aspen Strategy Group recently. and Bob addressed some of those dynamics in a, in a somewhat unconventional way that I think is worth listening, is worth listening to. I think um, you know China's engagement with WTO is interesting because they made a lot of structural changes, as you know. And you remember Dulingji to get China ready for accession, uh, when I think of the last period where China made really deep structural reforms, it was the way that Rongji used WTO accession as an external lever. Uh, to force some of the more difficult and unpleasant policy choices on China. They laid 35, 40 million people off out of state-owned enterprises. They changed some of the domestic dynamics. So the WTO was a useful lever for that domestically in China. It was one of the arguments for a bilateral investment treaty was that China could use that as an external forcing action to make some difficult choices. So they've used it that way. Um, I, think, I think the view a lot of people have in the U.S. is that... Um, They've embraced dispute settlement, but beyond dispute settlement, broadly speaking, um, they're not in compliance with the spirit. If not, there's kind of, in some cases, the letter, but in many cases, just the spirit of what WTO accession for China was designed to enable. Um, the government procurement agreement is one good example. Uh, the government procurement remains very difficult not to crack for foreign firms. And I think it really gets to what the future of foreign competition, what competition policy is gonna look like in China. Um, this is probably a good place to wrap, but I, when we're talking about, when, when I think about China, you know, we've all, I, I go back to Ezra's book on, on Deng Xiaoping. You know, we've always thought of reform and opening as being part of the same phrase. It was right, reform and opening. I think we need to contemplate a future where China's reforming, but not necessarily opening. Because I think the view of reform in China is considerably broader than the view that people in the United States may have of it. When we use the word economic reform, we think market liberalization.
1: I think economic
2: reform in China, frankly, has more meanings than market liberalization. It also means... Uh, administrative reforms that increase operational efficiency in the economy. It includes rebalancing powers between the center and locality. It includes a lot of other things that don't implicate, implicate competition policy and particularly foreign firms. So I can imagine a future where China's reforming things like price controls, changing the way corn is priced, cotton is priced, residential water is priced, even industrial inputs are priced. But that may not matter to foreign firms. That viewed WTO accession as some kind of uh, talismanic moment that was going to change the Chinese economy in ways that would really reshape the landscape for competition. Um, because that doesn't happened, uh, whether promised or not, whether implemented or not, it soured everybody on kind of the WTO story. It's why you have people in the political circle in the United States talking about whether WTO accession for China was a mistake. And it's why you have a guy like 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 Mr. Lighthizer, who's never been an enthusiast, he doesn't love the WTO, he's never been a WTO kind of guy, um, uh, basically having the wind at his back uh, for things that I think, whether it's messing with the arbitration system uh, and judges or other things, taking a much dimmer view of the US relationship to the WTO as well. That has its origin, and I think, in the debate about China. But I'm not a trade lawyer. And I think Charlene or Bob could give you a much more technical uh, and granular answer on that. But I hope that gives you something to bite on.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, We have, as you can imagine, a huge long list of questioners uh, who would have loved to ask questions. And I have to apologize again to them for not uh, managing the time well enough to give them a chance. But I think, all I speak for everybody here uh, who is listening to you that uh, we feel you've provided a wonderful, broad perspective. uh, The the combination of a scholar and a diplomat and uh, somebody who's been on the inside uh, and presenting things in scholars and we're very grateful. Uh, and uh, we wish you can back here. Uh, and I want to thank again, uh, Mark and Nick for their uh, fine job in uh, keeping the technology uh, flowing smoothly and uh, getting us off to a wonderful start. Thanks a lot, even
2: Thanks, Ezra. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And call me if you have more questions. <laughs> okay, well, you
0: may, may, may if you, and maybe we can get your email or something and some people sure. will send
2: on. It's a uh, pandemic. Questions. What else? I got nothing else to do. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: um,
2: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Well, it's wonderful. Um, it's- wonderful to have you.